Welcome to the second installment of our podcast, Washington State's Incarceration Issue. I'm Preston. I'm Campbell, and this is the second installment of our quest to find solutions to the issue of mass incarceration in Washington State for our English 102 class. How are you doing today, Preston? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Kind of crazy that we're almost done with winter quarter already. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, too. This quarter has definitely gone by quickly. Only one more until summer. Until then, we have to unpack everything going on in our state right now. In our last episode, we discussed the history and statistics surrounding the justice system in Washington to better understand how it has evolved into its current state. We ultimately landed on a new perspective in our research, which led us to focus on rehabilitation within the justice system. This episode, we'll be going over some alternative viewpoints and why people believe them. We'll also discuss and analyze all sides of the issue of mass incarceration and rehabilitation in the process. This should be an interesting episode. Should we just jump right into it? Yeah, we've prepared all of our sources and delved into common misconceptions and beliefs about rehabilitation. Now it's time to unpack them further. I believe we selected very good sources to analyze and go over in order to give our listeners a good sense of all the theories that we're going to cover today. First up, we will be dissecting an article published by Vox that covers the apparently well-favored theory about putting offenders in jail as punishment. Campbell, could you give us some basic information about this source for us? For sure. Authored by Dara Lind and German Lopez and published by Vox, this piece cites some evidence that counters our theory that rehabilitation is a possible solution to mass incarceration. And that they specifically cite a statistic from economist Stephen Levitt, who believes that a 58% drop in violent crime that took place in the 1990s was due to the increased incarceration of violent offenders. The study concluded that the decrease in crime was a direct result of the incarceration of violent offenders. However, this does not paint an entirely clear picture for the reader. While incarceration undoubtedly played some role in the decrease in crime, the study was based on older data when the crime rate was already beginning to decline. This theory led to massive growth of prison populations. Yeah, I think with data like this, it's important to look at it fully and to understand the context. Crime was already decreasing at the time, and this number only accounts for violent offenders, not nonviolent ones. Also, this implies that increased incarceration reduces crime rates, which is questionable to allude to, um, especially when our prisons are already overcrowded and the potential of our justice system is pretty likely to become overwhelmed. To add on to this, Levitt even noted in his study that the study wouldn't be able to account for the point of diminishing return, meaning that because there are only so many criminals, at some point we would begin to start arresting innocent people for crimes that they didn't commit. This study also claims that people age out of crime, so sentencing them to prison for 10 or 20 years would cause them to emerge a person who has no want to commit crimes anymore and does not pose a serious threat to public safety. This actually ties into another viewpoint we're going to discuss on incarceration, one expressed by a former prison boss in the UK. Sir Martin Neri, a former director general of the prison service, was quoted as saying, the things that we did to prisoners, the courses we put them on, the involvement of the charities made little or no difference inferring that the rehabilitation programs don't help introduce inmates back into society upon release. Although this took place overseas, it still applies to some opinions here in the U.S. 
Sonari even implies that criminality is caused by, quote, the damage of a lifetime, end quote, and cannot be undone through rehabilitation. This lends itself to a perspective that I found is common when we are researching, that rehabilitation as a concept, not necessarily in specific forms, is ineffective. History can prove this stigma is false. 20 years ago, both Norway and the UK transitioned from a punishment-based prison system to a rehabilitation-based one. In only one year, the UK experienced around a 50% reduction in inmates' reoffending rates. According to, I'm going to butcher this, Bandyo Padye, professor of economics, all in just the matter of one year. There is lots of evidence out there that contradicts Cernary's claim, not just in the UK, but here in the United States, too. One such example is described by Joan Petersilia in the National Institute of Justice Journal. In the late 2000s, Kansas implemented programs that offered subsidized housing, drug treatment, and education, resulting in the rate of recidivism decreasing by almost 16%. Although it was expressed by a former prison boss from the UK, this belief that reform is ineffective extends to the U.S. too. In an article from Cal Matters, Dan Walters describes a study conducted by California State Auditor Elaine Howell. In it, Walters quotes Howell, stating that she asserts, quote, inmates who completed their recommended CBT rehabilitation programs recidivated at about the same rate as inmates who were not assigned to those rehabilitation programs, unquote. In this quote, CBT refers to cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, in the, which is the form of rehabilitation that was implemented in this study. This belief is definitely in line with that of Sir Nary's, but that does not make it all true. For all the situations in the U.S. and around the world, Howell and Sir Nary's claims do not account for the different forms of rehabilitation that worked so well in states like Kansas. Howell's study focused on cognitive behavioral theory, I feel like this is another instance where it's important to not rely too heavily on evidence that might be from a personal experience or evidence that's specific to one singular situation. When analyzing such a widespread issue that's impacting so many Americans and Washingtonians, we have to look at the picture as a whole and consider all possibilities. Absolutely. This actually leads us to our next alternative viewpoint, which zooms in on the cost of rehabilitation. So, per a report by the Community Corrections Collaborative Network, the CCCN for short, a common misconception about rehabilitation programs is that they simply cost too much. Some believe that it costs much more than just putting people in prison to think over what wrong they have committed. They think that rehabilitation will just increase taxes on law-abiding citizens so criminals can be released sooner. However, this couldn't be further than the further from the truth. I do feel like it's understandable to be concerned about increased costs, especially from a taxpayer's perspective, or even increased funding from the point of view of a policymaker. But while this might be a common concern, it's not very well supported. Yeah, a lot of the issues involving money boils down to short-term versus long-term thinking. In the long-term, supporting rehabilitation definitely pays off financially. In the short term, it might seem intimidating for a community to take on. When thinking about the cost of rehabilitation programs, it's essential that we consider what the alternative is costing us right now. Prison populations have been skyrocketing and are continuing to do so. 
Taxpayer and governmental concern should surround what would happen if we don't do something to curb mass incarceration right now. One can hope that short-term expenditures in the form of investing in effective rehabilitation programs would pay off in the long term. That's right. Investing in rehabilitative programs would, in theory, lead to a decrease in crime. If there's less crime, there's less incarceration, which could save communities money and resources in the long term. In fact, the Justice Policy Institute contends that preventative treatment delivered in the community costs approximately $20,000 less than incarceration per person per year. Wow. Not only this, but instead of casting former inmates back into society with little preparation, people leaving prisons would be ready to be productive members of society. As demonstrated in Kansas, rehabilitation in the form of subsidized housing and education made a huge impact on the crime rate. It went down. It makes me wonder that if in addition to offering these services after post-incarceration, they were offered as an option for prevention. We touched on the connection between poverty and mass incarceration in the last episode, and these programs could make a significant difference in people's lives, possibly decreasing the crime rate and preventing incarceration altogether. What do you think, Preston? I think even if these programs did cost taxpayers more in the end, I would still support rehabilitation over contemporary prisons. Kansas, the UK, and Norway have gone to show that rehabilitation is worth every penny that it may cost. The reduction in reoffending rates alone shows enough growth by inmates to make sense to implement here. For sure. I feel like in the long run, implementing comprehensive rehabilitative programs would benefit everyone, even if it entails an increase in costs early on. And in continuing our discussion surrounding concerns about financing these programs, some might worry that the taxpayers don't want to support such policies. So some people are already concerned about what rehabilitative programs will cost themselves and their communities. Where will this money come from? Will people be willing to pay if need be? Well, as we mentioned, it actually saves money to implement rehabilitative programs, such as preventative measures short term. In the long term, rehabilitation programs post-incarceration also save communities money. But in order to implement these programs, it might take an upfront cost. Yep. Luckily, according to a survey by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, most respondents indicated that they would support an increase of up to 20% in taxes if it contributed to juvenile rehabilitation instead of incarceration. And again, it's important not to focus too heavily on one source or one piece of evidence. But this survey indicates a positive direction if the public is realizing the benefits of rehabilitation. Yeah, this is great news and indicates the possibility of change in the future. With public support and financial backing, these programs could become a reality. Now, before we sign off for this episode, we're going to get to the bottom of a vital part of our journey to answering our research question. What do rehabilitative programs currently look like in Washington? And what steps can we take to improve them? We've discussed all different forms of rehabilitation in this episode, from cognitive behavioral therapy to subsidized housing to educational opportunities. Fortunately, there are already some programs in place like this right here in Washington. Yeah, it's fortunate that people who are or have been incarcerated have access to some of these programs. 
The Washington State Department of Corrections currently offers programs in four main areas, according to their website, family and relationships, therapy, learning and working, and religious and spiritual. It's great that these are available to people here, but they can definitely be improved upon. Pursuing their website, it is clear that a lot of thought and effort has been put into these programs. Yeah. The one that stood out to me the most is a program offered to pregnant women and mothers who are incarcerated. There's an option for them to live in a minimum security complex with their children if they are under 30 months of age. I had no clue that that was even an option. This program sounds like it could definitely be a great option for mothers who want to keep their children in their lives while they are incarcerated. Yeah, I found it interesting that that didn't even really come up in our research about rehabilitation. While these programs are definitely beneficial, I think more can be created and offered to improve the quality and effectiveness of rehabilitation inmates here receive. Yeah. Among the forms of rehabilitation we talked today, the Washington State Department of Corrections offers programs in only two, education and drug treatment. All of the programs offered have the potential to make real positive change for individuals and communities. I personally would also want to see a focus on housing like we discussed earlier. I feel like another effective way to prevent reoffending would be to offer inmates who do opt into these rehabilitation programs further rehabilitation upon being released. It's great to see that the prison systems are in the beginning stages of being reformed to prioritize rehabilitation over punishment. Absolutely. I think preventative and post-incarceration programs would be of significant benefit. I'm glad that we're on the right track, but we definitely have a long way to go before we effectively reduce the rate of mass incarceration here in Washington. Overall, we feel like we're getting closer to possibly answering our research question. There's little doubt that comprehensive rehabilitation programs are appearing as a solution. Shifting out of focus from punishment to rehabilitation would dramatically lower the possibilities of people recommitting crimes after being released. Not to mention people are willing to fund some rehabilitation programs if it keeps young people from being incarcerated. And if implemented effectively, rehabilitative programs will save individuals, communities, and our state money in the long run. Well, this has been a very fun episode to make. I hope that all of our listeners have learned something new and have the information to form their own opinions on the subject. Yeah, I look forward to continuing the search for the answer to our research question and striving to reduce the rate of mass incarceration here in Washington State. Again, in the meantime, we can educate ourselves and advocate for positive changes we believe in. Again, thanks for joining us for this episode. Once again, this has been Washington State's incarceration issue. Thank you for joining us today.